Chris, I hear you're uh, a guy who likes to do video testimonies. That might be a really good one to uh, video. And then you can put it up for the whole world to see what it looks like to be restored and break the orphan spirit, which is great because that's one of the things I want to talk about, not today, but eventually. You know, you don't have to be orphaned to have that spirit touch your life. And so, and even after that, that evil spirit is out of your life, then you've got your thinking that you've got to fix after that. As long after God comes and he makes his sons and daughters, we still like to think like orphans. We still like to process our life through that ungodly lens. But not anymore, amen? All right, well... Today I'm going to uh, start sharing probably what will be a series of messages um, concerning my journey in and through and out of um, burnout. Um, and I'm sure you know many of you probably remember my message just before I left where I kind of bled out all over here on the pulpit, you know. And I, and I shared about how I was burned out, and I had lost my ability to have vision, um, and I lost my hope that things were ever going to change. And I had shared a scripture, Proverbs 13, verse 12. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And that really was where my heart was. It was sick from hope being deferred. And with a heart that is or was sick came hopelessness and some depression. And for those of you who um, maybe have suffered from hopelessness or even depression, you know that it's very easy to feel isolated and alone in the midst of a heart that is sick. You know, and, and you, you go through feelings like, what's wrong with me? Um, no one else is messed up like I am. Um, if I were a better Christian, I wouldn't be going through this. You know, stuff like that. Um, and the enemy really works hard uh, at piling on more and more condemnation to get you more and more isolated, more and more depressed. Well, one of the first things that the Lord uh, directed me to in my journey was the fact that I'm not alone, that I wasn't alone. And not just alone as in, you know, I have people and people love me. I mean, not, I wasn't just... But I'm not alone in this struggle. And as a matter of fact, I actually share this struggle of depression with a lot of history's greatest people. And I'll just give you for some instances that I, I, when, I, when I discovered these things, I, I just couldn't believe it. The, the late Mother Teresa is quoted as saying... I'm told that God loves me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. I can understand those feelings of loneliness. And then she continues and she says, I feel just that terrible pain of loss of God not wanting me. God not being God, of God not really existing. This is Mother Teresa. And, and even though she struggled and with that till the end of her life, she actually was able to deliver hope to thousands and thousands of the poorest of poor in Calcutta, India. 
Another example that I came across is Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is probably one of the greatest preachers of all time. And he was, he was loved for his outstanding ability to communicate God's word, his sparkling wit, his quick humor. And yet this man who literally addressed thousands, crowds of up to 20,000 people he would speak to, suffered a lifetime battle with depression. And Spurgeon even felt, you know, this great anxiety from what he would call the awesome responsibility of being accountable to God for the souls of so many people. As a matter of fact, in 1883, he said, I have preached the gospel now these 30 years and more, and often in coming down to this pulpit, I have felt my knees knock together. Not that I am afraid of any one of my hearers, but I am thinking of that account which I must render to God, whether I speak his word faithfully or not. During his early years in ministry, he was often the object of very intense slander and ridicule and contempt. And, and so he had this wrestling going on in him between uh, rejoicing in, in such persecution and being utterly crushed by it. But Spurgeon used his bouts of depression as a means of equipping others in their weariness. One of his famous quotes says that, he, he says, the ministry is a matter which wears the brain and strains the heart and drains the life out of a man if he attends to it as he should. Abraham Lincoln knew all too well the agony of doubt and depression. Early in his life, he wrote, I am... I am the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. That's a pretty sad statement. <laughs> Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode, I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. So how's that for the man who fought and won equality for all men? Martin Luther King Jr., who was the champion for the civil rights movement, was not only heroic, but he also had desperate stretches of depression. So much so that it sometimes alarmed his closest colleagues and friends. He, uh, and because of his uh, sometimes deep descents into the um, doldrums, he was even asked to see a psychiatrist by one of his top aides. As a matter of fact, Dr. King was quoted as saying, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. And then the last person that I discovered was a man by the name of Derek Prince. Are you familiar? If you know who Derek Prince is, raise your hand. Just a few of you. Well, Derek Prince was a, uh, a British minister and he was considered, is considered one of the fathers of the modern, of modern deliverance ministry. He pioneered deliverance. In fact, he wrote a book, um, They Shall Expel Demons. And I meant to bring it because I was going to read a big section of it. And I totally forgot it. So I'll try to summarize what he said. 
There's a whole chapter he talks about his own depression in this book and his own fight. He talks about his struggle. And in it, he talks about how he'd come to the Lord and God had, you know, saved him miraculously and he was experiencing that, that thrill and that joy. But there was this ominous, what he called a gray mist that was always around him. And again, another man who's preaching to hundreds and thousands. And it wasn't until he went through and he read a passage. Um, it was it was the um, prophetic, um, uh, the prophecy of Jesus in sixty one. You know, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to to preach the good news. When you get down through there, it gets to the point where it says, "I've come to give you know more uh, oil for for ashes," and he says this. For the spirit of heaviness, garments of praise. And he said, and Derek Prince said, when I read that, I was frozen on that scripture, the spirit of heaviness. Because he had prayed, he had fasted, he had read, he had done all the things that he knew he should or could do to relieve himself of this gray mist. But when he stopped on that, he realized, God, are you telling me? This is it. This is the key. And so the Lord began to lead him through a process of praying and and breaking the spirit of heaviness off of his life. And he says it was like like the, the mist had lifted and the sun began to shine in my life like never before. So why did the Lord show me these people? Well, I assure you, it wasn't to give me permission to live in depression. Okay? Are you hearing that? I know some of you hyper-worried people. He's, He's giving everyone permission. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. God did not give this to me to give me permission to live in depression or to embrace some unholy, romantic notion that, that as leaders, as the creators, as the pioneers, we are just tortured souls. No. It's just our cross to bear when you're out there on the front line. You know, I'm a tortured artist. My, my music only comes from the depth of darkness. It's the best because it's real. It's my cross to bear. It's the cross I have to bear so my art can live. No. Everyone say, no. That is not why I found these people. Reading their stories for me helped lift the condemnation that was on me for where I was. And it helped me see that even as I suffered, I was still making a difference. A difference that could last for generations. I may have not been happy, but I was still doing the Lord's work. I was still faithful. And that gave me hope. Not permission, not an excuse, it gave me hope. So what were some of the things, as you may be wanting to know, if you don't, too bad, I'm going to tell you. What were some of the things that helped contribute to my heart sick state? One of the biggest was, and this isn't just me, this happens to all of us, and that's why I think what I'm sharing today is going to really apply to a lot of us. For me, it was long-term stress. Long-term stress is a predecessor to depression. You might want to write that down. Long-term stress is a predecessor to depression. Things like constant expectations to come up with new and inspiring messages, it wears you out. 
It does. Trying to motivate the unmotivated wears you out. Leading people who don't want to follow wears you out. Casting vision and calling people to be a part of our mission when they only want to run their own personal mission wears you out. And so things like that begin to deplete your emotional system. It reduces your ability to stay balanced. And so long-term, long-term stress many times is not predictable or uh, detectable in the beginning because it's, it's well disguised by growing success. Financial prosperity, maybe people's accolades. Oh, you're doing such a good job. Thank you. And so the numbing effect, it keeps you pressing forward. Keeps you leading on empty until the bottom falls out. Then success is no longer the goal. Healing is. Long-term stress it depletes the, the normal fuel production or, or the normal fuel that is biochemically um, produced by hormones and secreted into the brain and nervous system. I'm talking about endorphins, peptides. See, endorphins and other peptides, they produce a numbing effect. And once these um, serotonins are exhausted... <laughs> Once your body's not producing it anymore, adrenaline has to kick in. It has to be produced to take the place of the serotonin. Soon, an addiction evolves. And it begins to put a demand on my body, and yours as well, for greater amounts of adrenaline. Right? We've all heard them. Adrenaline junkies. It's true. That's why people who, who've been to war and, and they thrive in that environment of high levels of hostility and intense situations, it's because they're living on adrenaline. That's how they survive. And then they come back to normal life and that adrenaline isn't needed any longer. You all saw the movie maybe of, uh, called The Hurt Locker. You know, the guy was the bomb tech and he just, he loved it even though it was the most dangerous job. And the scene is when he comes back from deployment, he's pushing a, a grocery cart down the frozen freezer section. <laughs> the happy elevator music playing in the background. And he realizes, I, I can't live this life. I can't do normal. Because he's addicted to adrenaline. Adrenaline, which is also known as epinephrine. It's... It's secreted in increasing rates, and your body becomes dependent on this powerful chemical to help meet deadlines and the expectations of others, as well as my own. And so adrenaline addiction is an emotional suicide that will slowly progress, but it's hard to detect. And if you don't recognize it soon enough, stress will precede burnout. And burnout is often accompanied by a supersized helping of depression. And when the mind is put under constant stress and anxiety um, is the result. And it throws the body into crisis mode. So things like your blood pressure go up. Your heart rate rises. Your cholesterol numbers go up. So this accelerated wear and tear results in things like ulcers and anxiety attacks and eventually heart disease. That's why we see high-powered people going to the grave at 55. So long-term stress is one of those things. Another contributor for me was unresolved problems. In Psalm 42... You want to write that down, verses 3 through 5. It says, 
My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Now, many of you may remember that when Lynn was here the last time, he preached on this scripture. And it blessed me. I sat in the back and cried. This man was reading my mail through his message. And it ministered to me. But, but here in, in Psalm 42, the psalmist knew that until something could be resolved, his soul would be troubled. Since he was unable to control his circumstances, he experienced feelings of despair and deep dismay. Now, for most of us, Unresolved problems are like unresolved debts. You know, they're, they're, uh, they're there, but you just can't bring yourself to deal with them. You know, I'm talking about stuff that goes to collection or you're late. You ignore the symptoms and suppress the reminders until they blister the inner recesses of your soul. They deplete energy. They can cause a low-grade fever in your emotions. And it won't be long before an overwhelming sense of helplessness and entrapment overshadows you. You see, here's the key. You can write this down because this is really good. Problems don't destroy you. Write that down. Problems don't destroy you. Here's the second sentence. Unresolved problems do. Unresolved problems will hurt you. And these are nagging issues that create a breeding ground for fear. It, 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 what it, its effect is, is we feel compelled to live in the past or feel as if our hope for tomorrow is slipping away from us. Unresolved problems can spawn chronic illness, Work stress, relationship problems, and family breakdowns. And any of these unwelcome life symptoms can trigger depression. So for me, long-term stress, lots of unresolved problems... Or a couple of the issues that were really contributing to my weariness. Another area that I had to look at had to do with a couple of prophetic words I had received months before I left on sabbatical. And the first came from a, a guy that I didn't really know. Eric knew him, but I didn't, which I prefer anyway, that way. He's got no information to skew whatever he feels from the Lord. But this gentleman had came up, come up to me at a, at, a, at a meeting and said, I have something the Lord has shown me about you. Uh, can I share it? And I said, yeah. And um, so he, he pulled Eric over because he knew Eric. And he said, with, um, he said he saw me with a pair of solid concrete shoes on my feet. And he said he didn't know what they were, but they were weighing me down. And he asked if, if I would just, just prophetically just, you know, step out of the shoes, just as a prophetic gesture of, of me saying, yes, Lord, 
And so I said, yes, absolutely, I agree. I stepped out of the shoes, and then he and Eric and I, we prayed. And that was that. Done. Okay. Hey, thanks. Awesome. Don't know what those shoes represent, but hey, (laughs) I take your word for it. Well, later, Eric um, texted the guy, and he asked him if he had any more revelation. Well, the fellow said that the concrete was white, and it wasn't gray or dingy. And he told Eric that he felt like I had picked up a responsibility or something that the Lord hadn't asked me to pick up. And he said that um, the, the, the concrete shoes were white, so it wasn't a bad thing that I uh, was doing. It was just the wrong thing that was slowing me down. So I said, okay, cool. I like that. It makes more sense even now. I began to ask the Lord what it was, but I didn't, I didn't get anything. I wasn't hearing anything. So then the next prophetic moment was a few weeks later. And Shelly came up to me, and she says that she was looking at me during worship one Sunday morning. And um, she said that the Lord had showed her that I had two yokes on my neck. Now, if you don't know what a yoke, the old biblical term for yoke, it's, a, it's what oxen wear to pull stuff, big wooden thing around their neck. It's what, what they wear. But she saw two around my neck. She said one was a very large yoke that was from the Lord. And one was a yoke that she perceived to be from the enemy. Um, And she even said that the large yoke that was on me from the Lord brought conviction to her heart about the work that I was doing and how people were underappreciating what I was doing. Okay, great, thank you. But the other yoke was from the enemy... And it was weighing me down. Well, I've said this before. I'm slow, but I'm not stupid. Ah, something else sounded like that. So immediately I remembered the other prophetic word about the concrete shoes, and I asked the Lord again, what am I carrying that I need to get rid of? Still nothing. So as I'm getting my heart and ready for sabbatical. I start studying and reading some different books on sabbaticals and healing, and I come across this thought that wasn't a new thought for me, but it somehow kind of had this fresh revelation or application to now my situation. And it was the thought of coming to terms with the difference between concerns and responsibilities. Concerns and responsibilities. Now, for whatever reason, some of us tend to worry. And if there isn't enough to worry about in our own family, we look to our neighbor's family. If we don't find something to worry us over in our neighbor's family, then we'll send out our worry net even wider. Maybe there's a family in another state. You know, another country, however far we need to cast that net. I mean, if we knew that there were people in the southern hemisphere of Mars, we'd probably worry about them. Those dust storms are killer. What's anyone doing to save those people? So for me, when a concern about, I'm going to get real vulnerable when a concern about another per, a ministry's, um, another person's ministry duties or the lack of leadership would arise here at church, I would begin tracking it as if it were a personal responsibility. And so as a result, I would worry about it. I would complain about it. I'd fret about it. Ultimately, I'd feel trapped And held hostage by it. Now, it may have been a very legitimate concern. But the thing I had to come to terms with was that 
even though it's a legitimate concern, it's not my personal responsibility. And so I had to start learning the difference between what is a concern and what is responsibility. So, for instance, if the church website isn't updated or ministry leaders are communica- aren't, aren't doing a very good job communicating well and things are falling through the cracks or you know, people aren't faithfully coming to Sunday morning service, stuff like that are all concerns. But I took them as personal responsibilities instead of just a concern. And you see, what happens is when we misdefine concerns as personal responsibilities, it will eventually confuse us and it will diffuse our, our, our own energies. Now, I know you're going, oh, when's he going to get exciting again? I'm telling you, I'm giving you stuff right now you can take to work with you on Monday morning. Okay? I'm giving you stuff you can take to work, you can take to school, you can take home to your family right now. Proverbs 26, verse 17. It says, like one who seizes a dog by the ears is a passerby who meddles in a quarrel, not his own. Now, it's not as easy as it looks for myself because, because of my role here in this church as an elder who I give oversight to um, this entire church and all of its ministries. And, and, and part of that, that, that oversight means I am faced with uh, making determinations on the health of our leaders or the health of our ministry, the things that are being stewarded by others. I have to determine part of my job. Is this healthy? Is it effective? Is it in the timing of the Lord? And sometimes other people's unhealthiness affects a lot of other people. Sometimes there are problems that it doesn't just affect one person. And we have to deal with that. Have to deal with the aftermath sometimes. So what I've had to do is I've had to focus on the personal part of my responsibilities. Meaning, I cannot take it personal when leaders and volunteers don't lead well. Did you hear that? I cannot take it personal when leaders or volunteers don't perform well. Now, you can say it like this. I can't take it personal when my coworkers or my, uh, my uh, reports don't perform well. Ultimately, I'm learning that my job is just to be faithful. And God's job is to make things grow. Ultimately, I am learning that my job is to be faithful. And it is God's job to make things grow. So, the revelation that I have now is that the concrete shoes and the extra yoke from the enemy were false responsibilities that I was carrying concerning the growth of our church, the growth of our ministries. Now, I still have concerns, but what do we do with concerns? What's the job? What does it tell us? Nailed it. Philippians 4. Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. 
It says, always be full of joy in the Lord. And I say it again, rejoice. Everybody say rejoice. rejoice. Now say it like it's a real rejoicing word. Rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming a long ways away. Don't worry about it. Oh, no, it's soon. Verse 6, here it is. Do not worry about anything. Let's just say that again. Do not worry about anything. Instead, by prayer, or instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. And I'm reading this out of the New Living Translation. I don't know if you have it up there like that. Instead, tell God what you need and thank him for all that he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Amen. So the Bible tells us what to do with our concerns. It tells us to take our concerns to the feet of Jesus and leave them there. <laughs> leave them there. While we invest our time and our emotional energy in the things that truly are our responsibilities. That's my new target. So how do I now realize or figure out what are my real responsibilities? Good question, Tom. I'm going to tell you. Because if any of us are going to enjoy healing and rest at our very core, we must discover and discern the top 5% of our life. Write that down. The top 5% of my life. You see, for most of us, 85% of what we do, anyone can do. Checking email, answering messages, attending meetings, reading the newspaper, watching TV, making simple life decisions. 85% of all that you do, that kind of stuff, anyone can do. These kinds of tasks don't require an elite expertise or any specialized skill. In fact, many of these tasks can be delegated to others so we can concentrate on what's most important to the job that we've been given to do. Now, the next 10%, the next 10% of what we do someone with a degree of training should be able to accomplish. After all, I was trained to do what I do, right? You get trained to do what you do. Someone showed you. Maybe you go to college, you get an education. If we were trained to do what we do, someone else of like capability could learn to how to run a computer program or solve the problem or play a guitar or lead a meeting, you know, do tasks like what we do. And with the right schooling and experience, someone else can perform a surgery, manage a project, or even sell real estate. Right? But the 5% of what I do only I can do it. And this is the most important 5% for me and for you. See, I cannot delegate any of those initiatives to anyone else. I can't hire someone else to take my place in any of these activities because they require that I be there. This 5% will determine the validity of the other 95% of my life. 
and this is what I'm in the process of discovering, and I need to make it the epicenter of my life. Now, my 5% may differ from yours, but the principle is transferable to everyone whether you're married or single or widowed, whether you're young or old. It's true for people with children. It's true for just young married couples. It's true for empty nesters. So I had to ask myself, what are the things that only I could do and if they were neglected would affect the rest of my life? Well, here's what I've had so far. Number one, my relationship with God. No one else can do that for me. You can't pray for me to God. You can pray to God for me, but you cannot pray my prayers to him. You cannot offer him my special worship. You cannot imitate my unique relationship with him. That's part of my 5% that no one else can do for me. Number two, my relationship with my wife. There's no one else who can be a husband to my wife but me. That is my job, my responsibility. If you do try to pretend, <laughs> we'll have problems. You try to fulfill those roles that only I can fulfill. I promise you there'll be trouble. <laughs> Jesus will be coming sooner for you than the rest of us. <laughs> but you can't love her in my place. You can't touch her life in my place. I'm the only one. I have to be there. Number three is my relationship with my children. I'm their dad. They came from my loins. There is a spiritual, emotional, and physical connection that is special between me and them. No one else can do it for me. There are lots of godly men who could come in and be father figures and bless my children in fatherly ways, but I, dad and I can't phone it in the next thing that I realized was my my music now I realized that anybody can stand up here with any amount of training as I just shared and learn to play a G chord an E minor a D minor flat 5 7 chord whatever you can play the same chords that I can play you can play the same notes that I can play. I can teach you note for note to do what I do. But you cannot out of the depths of my soul, you cannot pull out of my soul my song. When I write a song, be it good one or a bad one, it's only mine. You can take it and love it and sing it and have it on your iPod and play it all the day, which I recommend you do. With all my songs, I have CDs for sale, a whole worship album, and most of you probably don't have enough copies of. <laughs> There'll be someone at the Welcome Center to sell them to you. $10 or whatever you can afford. It's my music. Good or bad, it's mine. And it's my song. And it comes out of my soul. And it's never quite the same. You ever wonder why when you watch a band and they lose their lead singer? Or they lose this guitarist and they're just never the same again. You know why? Because of the magic, because of the anointing that was on that one. There are people who play guitar better than Jimi Hendrix ever played his guitar. Virtuoso types of guitar players in the world. But we know Jimi because of the anointing that was on his life. 
to bring forth new sounds and new ways to play the same 24 frets, same six strings that I got on my guitar, but he was able to do and create things with it that I haven't yet. And that's because it was his music. Next is my own creativity, my own artistic creativity. Again, we can all color a picture. We can all paint with a paintbrush. But there's something unique about what comes out of your soul. Next is my ministry and calling in life. Now, again, anybody can stand here and preach. Anyone can teach. Anyone can lead a Bible study. Anyone can raise up uh, singers and musicians. Anyone can uh, usher forth a uh, forerunner spirit. But there are things that God put me on the earth to do that only I can do. There are others who can do things like I do, but they can't do what I'm supposed to do. And if I don't do it, it's lost. If I'm called to be an evangelist and I don't get anybody saved, there will be other evangelists who say yes to God. But my mission failed. You can't do it in my name. You can't do it in my honor. You can only do your thing. And all of those things together thus far and I'm not saying my list is finished. I've just, this is what I have so far. But ultimately, all of this leads to my greatest responsibility, and that is my legacy. Who will remember me for what? What will my children remember me for? What will the generations that come after me, what will my legacy be in their lives? Only I can determine that. You can't do it for me. You can talk to generations about me. But if you weren't affected by my legacy, then you're just talking about it. That's my 5% so far. And I'm still working on this list. But I want you to know, for me and for you, when you figure out, what those things are. For me, these seven items are going to require my daily investment of my time and my heart. In fact, the condition of these six areas will, to a large extent, determine the state of my entire life. If these areas are compromised, the consequences will be felt in all other areas. If this 5% fell into disrepair or neglect, my life would grind to a halt until these priorities were regained once again and restored. And it is this crucial 5% that God will one day hold me accountable for. It's not going to necessarily be the other 85% that's going to shape my future. It's not going to be the 10% that will build my legacy. Now, it may impress the world. It may shine up my resume. But it won't impress God much. Not like the 5% will. And our choices of what is most important are shaping our souls. We are not going to be held accountable for how much we have done. We will be held accountable for what we have done, for what God has asked us to do. So I am going to stop right here in my message. And I want to put this question to you. What is your 5%? that you can no longer neglect. I know I've shared a lot of things today, but I want you this week, this is your homework, this is your assignment, 
I want you this week to discover and evaluate how well you are living out your 5%. And if you feel comfortable, feel free to post it on our New Covenant uh, Facebook page, our group page. But I encourage you to talk it over. If you have a spouse, talk it over with your spouse. If you don't, talk it over with your friends. Talk it over with your parents. Share it with someone who can encourage you and hold you accountable to your 5%. Will you do that? Okay, two of you said yes. A resounding yes would be great. Are you going to do that? Yes. Well, then let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just, again, we thank you for, I thank you for my journey. I thank you that hopefully from my journey, others will learn and see and gain insight and help and revelation, God. But I just thank you, God, that you, you make all things work together for those who love you. So today, God, I pray for this room, for the people and the hearts who are here and those who will go online and hear the podcast. God, I pray that they would take their 5% serious, that they would not delegate it or abdicate it to someone else, but they would be wholeheartedly in pursuit of their own 5%. That, God, we would, as a people, learn how to discern between concerns and responsibilities. That you would teach us, God, how to deal with long-term stress and unresolved conflict and problems, God. Help us, God, to be people who bring resolve and every concern we bring to your feet as we cast all our cares upon you, God, because you love us and you care for us. So God, I pray this week that we would discover what is our 5% that you've called us to do. And then give us courage to faithfully and strongly go after that which you've called us to do, God. We thank you for all of you. We thank you for all that you've done we love you, God, and we bless you today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. If you are here and you need prayer for anything, the altar team will be available after service. If you want one of the prayer guides from Alger, please make sure and let him know about that. And God bless your day.